The sermon text this morning is taken from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 23. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For I have already charged that all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now turn to chapter 6. Beginning with verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But then what return did you get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification, and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me try to explain what we are doing in this five-part series on these six truths that are outlined for you on the inside of this Quest for Joy pamphlet. My goal is to make understandable the truth of the gospel for you. Now, notice the word I use, understandable, rather than understood. It does not lie within my power to compel understanding. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man, that's a, a catchphrase for a person without the enablement of the Holy Spirit, a person who hasn't believed yet, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit transforming and opening. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them. Now, the root of that inability to to understand, the root of that inability is moral, not intellectual. It is possible to be so opposed to an idea that the signals coming from the will to the mind so distort reality that the mind can't make sense of it. And we we don't need to just get that from the Bible either, although I think that's plain. Behavioral psychologists have done many experiments to our chagrin to show us that we all are very prone to see selectively. See what we want to see and not to see what we don't want to see. 
And tests are given to show that people just don't even see what they don't want to see. And it's a very easy step to say, if the will can so govern the perceiving faculties of the mind as to black things out that they don't want to see, it's very easy to understand then that the will also can so distort the atmosphere of the mind that it can't construe truth to make sense. If it doesn't want that truth to make sense. And the Bible says that's the trap natural people are in. And so when I say my purpose in these messages is to commend the understandability of the truth, I say it with measured words. Two implications come from this. Number one, the Holy Spirit is absolutely indispensable in all preaching and in all your sharing of the gospel. Only the Holy Spirit can reach into a darkened heart and make a light go on so that all of a sudden things begin to click in the truth and in the gospel. Only the Holy Spirit can remove the veil. Only the Holy Spirit can soften the hardness so that a person will give attention to the truth and say, well, maybe so. That might just handle this and this and this and make sense out of my experience. Only the Holy Spirit. That's why I put, by the way, you see this little paragraph on the last panel up at the top? It says, does this make sense to you? Do you desire the kind of happiness God gives, the kind that gladly gives Him glory? If so, then God is at work in your heart. Because that kind of inclination, that kind of openness and desire don't come from human nature. We are rebels by human nature against the truth of the gospel. And the second implication besides the need of the Holy Spirit is that you and I bear the burden of responsibility to put an understandable gospel on the table for consideration in this world. The Holy Spirit always coordinates His convicting power within with our evangelistic work without. And the reason he always coordinates his inner work with our outer work is that he does not think it fitting to open the eyes of the blind on a dark room. He will open the eyes of the blind when the room is full of the light of the gospel, which I hope this room is Sunday after Sunday. And I hope your home is, and I hope your workplace is, and, and your car is when you have a hitchhiker. I hope that you are letting the light of the gospel shine because the Holy Spirit pledges himself not to work in a convicting way when you let darkness hang in front of a person's face. That is un, untruth. And so it is a team effort here. The Holy Spirit opens the heart when we lay truth on the table for consideration. And therefore, we must depend upon Him in prayer and we must take the responsibility by His power to lay the truth before a person's eyes. And those two things coming together create conversion. Therefore, I have tried to lay out what I think is necessary truth to, to make sense out of the gospel. Truth number one, back here, on the first panel inside, was God created us for His glory. 
We need to say something about God and His purposes. The second truth was, every human should live for God's glory. We need to say something about who man is and what man's duty is, what God's expectation of us is. And last week I labored a long time at the end of the message to say that even though the duty to live for God's glory has authority of law, it's not a burden. It is not burdensome and oppressive. Why? We are required, I said, and hinted at there in that paragraph under number two, to glorify God by loving Him, trusting Him, thanking Him, and obeying Him. But I, I stress with several examples at the end of that to love a person who is infinitely lovely and to uh, bank or trust a person, bank on or trust a person who is infinitely reliable and to thank a person who is infinitely generous and to obey a person who is infinitely wise is not hard. It's relaxing, it's fulfilling, it's freedom, it's joy. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. He gets the glory, I get the joy. That's the way it was supposed to be when God created the world. But... We must, in order to make the gospel understandable, move on to truth number three, which says, All of us have failed to glorify God as we should. Now let me stress again here before we move on, that Jesus said in John 16, The Holy Spirit will come, and when He comes, He will convict the world of sin. I think I can make sin understandable this morning. I can't break your heart for it. I can't. I can't break my own heart for sin in my life. One person can break your heart for sin so that contrition and humility are your portion and an openness to the meaning of the gospel. And that's the Holy Spirit. And so before we go on and move into truth three and four, which are sin and its consequences, I want us to pray together. And as many of you who agree with that last point, just pray with me about the moving and the spirit in this room. Let's pray. Hundreds of us unite now, Father, against the evil one, the God of this age who blinds the, mind, blinds the minds of unbelievers. We unite to resist him firm in our faith. In fact, we would be so bold as to say out loud, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. You have been defeated at Calvary. Christ has triumphed over you on the cross. We get the victory through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And so, be gone out of this room and lay off the hearts of unbelievers in this room. And Holy Spirit, now come. Don't let that Satan return sevenfold into the lives of people in this room. Take up residence, Holy Spirit. 
convict of sin, open to the gospel, establish truth, save sinners, I pray, in these next 15 minutes or so. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Now the verse that I listed for you to consider under truth number three here is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want you to notice two things in that verse mainly. Number one, the word all, standing at the beginning emphatically, without exception, everybody in this room and everybody outside this room, everybody who has ever lived or will live except one, Jesus, lived without sin. Preachers and prostitutes, Billy Graham and Genghis Khan, President Bush and Ted Bundy, you name it. The most adorable and wonderful people to the most despicable people are all on level ground as sinners. That's the first thing to notice. Don't rule yourself out of that. Don't say, oh, it's not me. I'm a good person. I don't care what any man thinks of you. This verse says, John Piper is a sinner. And all of you. The second thing to notice in this verse is the connection between sin and falling short of the glory of God. I think it's fair to say, sin is a falling short of the glory of God. Of God. Now that's very important. It links up with the first two truths. It also says something very important about how you're going to share the gospel with self-assured American citizens. You go to a typical, well-dressed, hard-working, law-abiding, upstanding, humane, unbelieving American and say... You need Jesus because you're a bad person. And they will have ready to hand a half a dozen arguments that will show they're not a bad person. And they'll argue with you about that. And they'll compare themselves with other people. And they will make a case. They'll look to their honesty and their civic duties and their clothed and educated children and their charitable contributions and their uh, criminal record which doesn't exist. And they will say... You're off the wall. Don't lay that on me. Now, what's wrong here? What's wrong is that God is not in the picture. He's not in the equation of guilt yet and badness. If you don't start the gospel with God, it makes absolutely no sense. You want to make the gospel understandable... You must begin with God. And this culture doesn't begin with God. It doesn't know God or God's purposes. It doesn't know man or man's design or duty and destiny. And so, the most important issue, the glory of God, is not even on the table yet. When you say to a person, you need Jesus because you're a bad person. They have no categories for processing that indictment in its true biblical proportions. 
the most important person is ignored, the most important issue, the glory of God, is ignored. That's why truth number one and truth number two are absolutely essential. In order to show how terribly sinful I am, I must contemplate God and His purposes. Then I must contemplate uh, human beings and what they are destined for in God. And then I must look at truth number three. Last time I said we are supposed to glorify God by trusting Him and thanking Him and obeying Him and loving Him. But what have, in fact, all of us done? Who of you in this room would say, I have consistently and fervently glorified God through trust, thanks, obedience, and love every minute of my life? Instead, what we have done, instead of glorifying God by loving Him, we have neglected Him, disdained Him, loved other things more than Him and gotten a lot more kicks out of the world than out of Christ. Second, instead of glorifying God by trusting Him and finding our security and our hope and our welfare in Him, we have sought security and hope with money and technology and our own initiatives and weapons, but not in God. Third, instead of glorifying God with gratitude for life and breath and everything, we have treated life as a right and we have treated happiness as something we deserve instead of an absolutely free and gracious gift of God which He did not have to give us and which we ought to thank Him for every moment of our lives. And fourth, instead of glorifying Him by obeying Him and seeking His counsel, on our sex lives, our politics, our finances, our relationships, our attitudes, we haven't consulted him 90% of the time in the choices we've made. We have written him off, blackballed him, ignored him, brought contempt upon him through our indifference. That's the story of every person in this room The issue when you tell a person that they need Jesus is not whether they have impressed any man or woman. The issue is whether they have disdained God through neglect and outright distrust. A vote of no confidence to the Almighty. One of the verses that makes this most clear, that the nature of sin is dragging God's glory down, is found here in this paragraph. I'll read it with you, and it's Romans 1, 22 and 23, but let's read the whole paragraph up to that point. Truth number three, the small print under the main truth. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? It means that none of us has trusted God the way we should. None of us has obeyed Him the way we should. We have trusted ourselves we have turned from his commandments. We thought we knew a better way. In Romans 1, 22 and 23, it says, Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. 
That's what I think it means to fall short of the glory of God. Just lock it away in your head for future reference and use. The best explanation of Romans 3.23 is Romans 1.23. You can remember it that way. And the reason I think it's an explanation is this. It says that God is all-glorious and has manifested himself to the world. He has offered himself to us for the enjoyment of the glory of his grace and the glory of his beauty and the glory of his generosity and the glory of his wisdom and the glory of his strength. He's offered us to, him, to us uh, himself in all of his glory and we have sort of uh, looked at him over, sniffed at him a little bit, and turned to money. Sex, prestige, power, family, relationships, hobbies... He simply does not get one and a half percent of most people's attention and affection. That's a slap in the face. That's a spit in the face of God. That's no exaggeration. We have disdained the glory of God by exchanging His glory at a store for this world. Whatever form of it you happen to like. And when you trade something in for something of infinitely less value, you heap infinite contempt upon God. The prophet Ezekiel, when he wanted to make this plain to the people of Israel, what their sin was really like, he said this in chapter 36, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. The reason people need a Savior, the reason I need a Savior, is not because I have transgressed any man's law or fallen short of any man's expectation. It's because I have slighted the honor of God. I have dishonored His glory. I have brought contempt upon His worth. I have disdained and profaned His name. I have done this every day of my life. And you have too. Which leads to truth number four. All of us are subject now, therefore, to God's just condemnation. Some of us are very indignant that in this land 4,000 unborn babies are butchered every day by suction machines and forceps. Some of us are indignant at serial rapes and murders. Some of us are indignant at racial discrimination and apartheid. Some of us are indignant and angry about the wrecking of the environment. And I hope you're in one or all of those groups. But let me give you a little quiz now. Is 
the degradation of God through distrust and neglect and ingratitude and disobedience a greater or lesser crime than all of those. Test yourself to see whether you are a world-saturated, man-centered person or a Bible-saturated, God-centered person. Now, to help you answer that question, let me state a principle. A crime is wicked, evil, and blameworthy in direct proportion to the worth of the one assaulted. Did you get that? A crime is blameworthy, wicked, and evil in direct proportion to the worth of the one assaulted. So, you can smack as many mosquitoes as you want and not an eyebrow will be raised in this community. Why? They're not worth anything. You try to do that to dogs, you'll get into trouble. Horses, more trouble. People, you will die or sit in jail the rest of your life. Now, I just ask you to extend from man to God and tell me what kind of a leap you're making there in worth. I believe with all my heart that the distance between me and God in worth is greater than the distance between me and a mosquito. Infinitely greater. God is the infinite worth of the universe. God is the treasure. And therefore, the blameworthiness, the evil, the wickedness of any act that degrades, heaps scorn upon, or brings contempt upon God is immeasurably horrible and heinous and worthy of eternal and infinite condemnation. Now, this will simply not make sense in a world where God is a millimeter tall. But at Bethlehem, I hope it makes sense. God made us, holds us in being by the word of his power, knows the atom and all of its pieces, has named every one of the billions of galaxies, calls them by name. He is God, infinite in glory, infinite in worth, infinite in majesty and purity and holiness. And we are no bigger than a little, tiny, minuscule ant on this earth which is among all the billions of the galaxies and we scorn him with our disbelief. We scorn him with our lack of faith. We scorn him with our two-second devotions. We scorn him with our fear of witness. We scorn him every day by our attitudes of irritability and unkindness and lack of love. We heap scorn upon God 
every day, even after we are saved. And we are doomed. We are absolutely doomed. And it is just. Jesus Christ is the one who made it more clear than anybody else that our doom would be horrible. Matthew 5, whoever says you fools shall be subject to the hell of fire. Matthew 18, it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into eternal fire. Four times he said there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. John, the apostle of love in his revelation, said the wine of God's wrath will be poured unmixed into the cup of his anger and the smoke of torment will go up forever and ever and they will have no rest day or night. And the Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, they shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. There it is. Glory. All four truths. Glory. 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 Truth number one, we were created for His glory. Isaiah 43, 7. Truth number two, we ought to live for His glory all the time. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Truth number three, every one of us don't do it. We're sinners to the core. We heap scorn upon His glory and fall short of His glory. Romans 3, 23. And truth number four, therefore the wrath of God is coming upon the world and everybody in it. And we will be excluded from the glory of the Lord and enter into eternal fire and torment forever and ever. And I want to end this message because this is the weightiest, heaviest, most awful thing I could ever say. Jonathan Edwards said, this doctrine is dreadful and horrible, but tis of God. And he's right. And so I want to close by pleading with you that if you're here this morning and the wrath of God is resting on your head, that you get yourselves out from under that wrath. Here's the verse I'm thinking about. John 3.36 says, He who believes on the Son of God has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son, the wrath of God rests on him. So right now, the wrath of God rests on some of you. It's like a Damocles sword just hanging over your head. And it doesn't have to stay there. You don't have to walk out of this room with condemnation hanging over your head. It says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says in Romans 10, He is rich unto all who call upon Him. All who call upon Him will be saved. Acts 3, repent and turn, therefore, for the wiping out of your sins. Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So here's the way I want to end the service, briefly and yet very pointedly. I want you to bow in prayer with me. Would you do that? And all of you believers praying earnestly, 
for those who have not yet believed. And I want you to deal with God in a moment of silence about whether you are prepared for eternity, whether you have found a solution for your sin problem in Jesus who died to bear it, whether you've embraced Him by faith and are following Him as Lord. And I'm going to ask David to stand in front here and we're going to sing in a moment one verse, just like we did earlier, you don't need your book, of Just As I Am Without One Plea. And if there are any of you who need to seal this with God, to embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, to repent of sin and make a decisive new beginning, I want you to just come stand with David, stand at his side. And when we're done with that song, I'm going to pray for you and for the rest of us. So you take a moment in silence now to decide whether this is the time for a decisive move into fellowship with God and then the beginning of a public statement, I belong to Christ henceforth free from condemnation. Let's just pray for a moment and then we'll sing.